This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. So it does feel like we're making some progress when it comes to the virus, although we did mention that uh, headline out of Germany that they're going to extend their partial lockdown until January 10th. But Tim, like I do feel like the UK becoming the first to approve a vaccine, right? And and we are moving towards that logistics phase. We talked about this earlier. Like I do feel like we're making some progress. Yeah, we are starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, which feels really, really good. Let's see what our next guest has to say about that. Uh, she is back with us, Dr. Renee Dua. She's founder and chief medical officer of HEAL. Uh, it is uh, really providing medical care in the privacy of your home. I kind of love to hear more about what they're talking uh, and what they're doing. Uh, investors include Lionel Richie, Qualcomm founder and chairman, or former chairman and CEO, Paul Jacobs, and also BET co-founder and investor Bob Johnson. So some really interesting investors backing uh, them. Renee is back with us, joining us from Los Angeles. Renee, good to have you here. How are you? I'm well. How about you? Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, we're doing okay. Uh, you know, just watching the headlines. What are you guys seeing out there uh, on the West Coast and out in L.A. in terms of uh, COVID? Well, much like you're seeing, we are seeing rising cases. We are seeing, you know, here in L.A., we have a mandatory stay-home order. Um, and it's going to go through certainly the children's winter break and probably into January. So a lot of the same things that, that you guys are going through as well. Wow. Dr. Dua, how, how is it changing the way that you're providing care to your patients? Well, luckily for us, we were always, in some ways, prepared for a mm. pandemic, I suppose. Wow. <laughs> it is so we, we built software that allows patients to stay home. We route and dispatch our medical teams to our patients' homes. We use remote monitoring devices, and we use telemedicine and video to see our patients and, and keep an eye on them, give them a very high-touch experience. So we are very busy, which I think is wonderful for the patients and wonderful for us. Yeah, I mean, I want to make sure I understand this. You were doing this before telemedicine was was sort of a household name, right? It was before right. everybody built, was t- we, telling you to download these apps so you could actually go to the doctor right. without going to the doctor. Yep, you are you are exactly right. We We always considered that having video accessibility to your doctor was a part of a coordinated care experience. And so we've had video and telemedicine capability for a long time so that our medical teams en route to a house call can keep an eye on their patients. What's what's demand been like versus, you know, uh, the telemedicine versus people actually going to homes? Tell us what you've seen in terms of trends over the last six, seven, eight months. Certainly. In the beginning, people were scared even to have us in the home, right, yeah. which is understandable. But as things have loosened and we've come to understand how COVID operates as a transmissible infection, there are those patients who recognize the importance of having a physician do a proper examination and the importance of their screening examination. To give you an example, if a woman hasn't had her mammogram this year, that's a, it's an urgent matter at this point, at the end of the year, and we want to make sure a woman has breast cancer screening every single year. So I think patients are now feeling more uh, understanding about us wanting to come into the home. They realize we wear PPE. They realize we're going to send them to a possible imaging center for a screening exam that we cannot do in the home, and they are accepting of it. And then 
to minimize risk, they're comfortable with a video chat or right. give, or allowing us to do a remote monitoring of their blood sugars or their blood pressure so that we can keep an eye on them uh, without having to be in their living room. Have you heard anything about getting a vaccine for yourself or for any of your providers who are going into homes? Because I was talking with some doctor friends over the weekend who work at a big hospital here in the city. And, you know, these are the people who are supposed to be getting their vaccines and they haven't Mm -hmm. heard anything. No. And I, and I haven't, and my colleagues haven't. Hmm. And you're right. We've been told we will be prioritized. So how do they do it? I mean, if you haven't even heard about it, the last mile is supposed to be very (laughs) tough. Yeah. It's, it's the million dollar question. I think there's a lot of exciting uh, activity going on on the COVID vaccine. I think great progress is being made. I don't necessarily think healthcare uh, prior uh, healthcare workers will be prioritized by the end of this year. But hmm. it would be really wonderful in January. You, you um, don't think my colleagues that are working in hospitals, you know, they got goodness. Without them, what will we do? Right. So it's it's. Wait, an we, urgent, urgent matter. We want to make sure we heard right. So you do not think healthcare workers will be prioritized this year when it comes to the uh, COVID nineteen vaccine? How. We're already, yeah. I don't see how we haven't heard anything. The the, the news is that we will be. Right. But my own personal opinion, I don't see how we will be with which vaccine. How are we going to roll that out? How are the hospitals being notified? You know, I'm on staff at hospitals, for example, and I haven't been informed as of yet. Wow. I'm surprised about that. Although, like, I think that speaks to what we've all been talking about, how difficult it will be ultimately in, you know, the logistics and the distribution. And we still that's have right. yet to approve it. Right. That's, that's the point, right? <laughs> so so what are we giving these healthcare providers? Is it approved? Yeah. How are we rolling it out? COVID cases are rising. So the same people that are working to build these vaccines and prioritize and approve are also susceptible to whoever is affected by COVID and right. their family members, right? So it's it's just this incredibly right. difficult rollout. I, I certainly feel for the people that yeah. are behind all of these efforts. Renee, I have to tell you that uh, Tim and I were talking the heck and we're just like, we were shocked when you said that you didn't think uh, health professionals were going to get the, the vaccine by the end of the year because it just feels like it's been moving in that direction. If indeed that's the case, when do you think realistically you could see you and your team and some of the hospitals that you're affiliated getting access to the vaccine? I think it'll probably be January. Again, as we as we talked about, there needs to be an approval on which vaccine, how to transport the vaccine, how to roll out the vaccine to these thousands and thousands of frontline uh, employees, you know, the respiratory therapists, the nurses, um, the doctors, there's so many people in a hospital that help take care of patients. We're all frontline. And so that's an enormous rollout. Does the timing of how you think you're going to get a vaccine, does that change how, how you think the general population will be vaccinated? Will it still happen this summer? Or do the challenges remain too tough logistically to roll this out on a widespread basis in the U.S.? I personally think it's going to be logistically difficult, but I've seen it done before. I remember years ago when there was an H1N1 breakout and there was a particular vaccine that was offered um, in my community. I was able to line up at a park and I was able to vaccinate uh, myself and my husband. So I definitely think it's a possibility. And I I remember just being so impressed with the efforts made and how much hard work it must have been to roll it out. I definitely think it can be done again. I think the value in starting with hospitals, hospital staff, 
and patience means that those those zones become an area of safety for everyone. Um, and I think from there, you know, rolling out to general populations, of course, we're always going to have people who refuse to be vaccinated. So rolling out to general populations is going to be an un- another interesting dilemma, but definitely well, will be done. How much of that are you seeing among your own patients? It's a great question, especially as it's flu season right now. And there's right. this suspicion that being vaccinated for the flu can in some ways help if you do get COVID and have symptoms of COVID. Mm. And so um, we are seeing, interestingly, more patients want to be vaccinated for Mm. the flu, which is wonderful. We do deliver flu shots to our patients who who are our primary patients and use us for their physicals. So we are seeing that we can add those flu shots on for them, and we add them on for all the members of the home, which I think is a wonderful service that we are able to offer. And I hope, you know, the the pharmacies and the the doctor's offices that – work alongside with us are seeing similar uh, similar use cases for the flu vaccine. How do you recommend that people stay safe when they go to the doctor? You heard me joking about not going to the dentist since January. It's not a joke. It's actually true. Um, what precautions are people taking when they're going to uh, the doctor just for a checkup? Right. And, and so first, I would say if, if heals in your community, you should use it, right? You shouldn't go to the doctor's office. But second, I would say if we're not in your community and you are going to the doctor's office, first step would be to take your temperature at home, make sure you don't have a fever. Second step would be to wait in your car with a mask on and call your doctor's office and ask if your doctor can see you and if you should wait until you can be seen. Third, I would avoid waiting in waiting rooms at all, right? This is the trouble with the doctor's office. This is where infections happen. And finally, I would ensure that the doctor and the staff are all wearing PPE, they have face masks on, they have gowns and gloves, they're washing their hands, and so are you between visits. Um, and finally, I would book your follow-up when you leave the office. So maybe maybe give a phone call and schedule your follow-up outside and, and in the safety of your own car. I got to say, I've done a fair amount of things, even gotten a root canal, Tim, and um, <laughs> the medical community... Um, all of them are taking it really, really seriously. So you're saying there's no excuse for me not going there's to the There's no excuse. All right, I'll do it. <laughs> but there I'll leave it for you. <laughs> All right, Renee, thank you so much. Dr. Renee Dua, uh, founder and chief medical officer of HEAL on the phone from Los Angeles. Yeah, listen, and especially like routine tests, there were things I put off. And as soon as like June hit, July went and had it all done because I had a, I was a little worried about what was going to happen here. Well, that's going to be a, a big unintended effect or consequence of this, mm-hmm. right, is the mm-hmm. health the, the health procedures that people have put off, the testing that they've put off. Right. And we're going to see that play out over the next few years. Right. And you're hoping that somehow the numbers can be controlled because there are going to be people who need either um, going in for cancer treatments and so on, and you just don't want that healthcare system uh, maxed out too much. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. So we've been talking, uh, Tim, a lot about this this past week, right? about the upcoming Airbnb IPO, which could be one of the largest this year. I mean, expectations are high. Yeah, more than $2 billion is what they're planning to raise. And this company has seen quite a turnaround this year. It's been shocking the way they've been able to fix the business. Well, that's such a good point. We talk about companies pivoting in COVID-19. So let's get to this story by Bloomberg News real estate reporter Patrick Clark reporting for Business Week, talking about the company's ability to adapt during the pandemic. Patrick joins us on the phone in New York City, along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. Joel on the Access line from Brooklyn. You know, back in March, Joel, I wouldn't have thought we would have been like talking about an Airbnb IPO, that's for sure. 
totally. And, and I mean, we did, uh, we, we talked to Brian Chesky, the, the CEO, even, even, um, kind of mid pandemic or a couple months ago at mm -hmm. least. And I, I think even then we were hesitant to, to say if they were going to be a winner of the pandemic or not, but spin it forward a couple months and here we are, and they're probably on the brink of an IPO and they've really managed to adapt and, it speaks a little bit to their business model and how their business model is different from their peers and competitors, which they acknowledge in their paperwork, their pre-IPO paperwork. And, you know, that's why we asked Pat to kind of explain it all to us. So, so Pat, what allowed uh, Airbnb to, to pivot and adapt when so many of their competitors have, um, frankly, not been able to do so? I think it comes down to, to two things, uh, you know, were they lucky or were, were they good? And, and, and they were a little bit of both. Um, the pandemic has been really bad for the travel industry all over, but, you know, even worse for airlines than for hotels um, and worse for business travel than for people going on vacation. People have needed to get out of their house and, you know, get a change of scenery since they're spending so much time at home. And Airbnb, you know, despite trying to um, or at least eyeing ways to get into, you know, either the, the air travel or uh, sort of business travel businesses, they haven't really stood those things up. So in, in that sense, you know, there was no business there to lose. Um, on the other hand, they have uh, they've been pretty, pretty skillful at, at sort of steering into uh, – the demand that's out there so they you know they have figured out how to uh, you know promote and um you know find basically find find places for people to go get away that they can drive to and and some of those right. were already on their platform um but they've they've figured out ways to both expand uh that supply to meet the demand and then you know, to help their customers find those places, um, you know, there's only so many houses in the Hamptons. So where do they take you next when, <laughs> right. when you can't? You it know, has been it, 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 it has been a little painful for, for Airbnb. The company did have to lay off 1,800 workers. They, they, that was about a, a quarter of its total. Um, the company had to cancel marketing efforts. Uh, talk to me about the valuation, how it was cut just a few months ago when they raised debt. And then how it expects, how much it expects and how it expects to be valued uh, when it IPOs. Yeah, it really speaks to the sort of whiplash nature of this experience. I think in April, they um, went out and raised debt to just to shore up, you know, to, to, to shore up their finances because, um, you know, the, the road ahead looked really perilous. Um, and, you know, and as of March or April, you know, the, the potential of going out into the public market and raising money through uh, an IPO would have seemed uh, somewhat far-fetched. So they, you know, they raised capital in April, and when they did, uh, it valued the company at around $18 billion, which was um, down substantially to from, you know, from what the company had been, worth um in, in i think 2017 and it was valued at 31 billion in a funding round and and now at the upper end of the range that they are talking about pricing shares at um in their most recent um filing uh, i think it valued the company at upwards of 35 billion dollars wow. so um you know twice what it was worth in april which is pretty incredible yeah uh, so, Pat, I got to ask about um, a, a parallel that you draw in the story, which I had not heard before. But like one, one actually sector in the hospitality business 
uh, that's done an especially good job during the pandemic is sort of the budget hotel line. And one of the comparisons you draw is that actually that's um, a bit of a comparison as a competitor for, for Airbnb, at least from a price point perspective. But there's also that downside, which is that Airbnb has also um, been you know, exposed to, you know, where, where there's crime at the budget hotel side, you know, Airbnb has this party house kind of problem. And that's been a little bit of a rain cloud on the IPO as well. Can you talk about how they're attempting to address that? Well, I think for a long, I mean, I think Airbnb has, um, you know, they've had these issues for a while and they have in, you know, they have attempted to address them for a while and they, you know, they do background checks. They they won't let, uh, I think in some cases, uh, you know, they, effectively they won't let people below a certain age, uh, you know, book houses in their hometown because it indicates they're not, you know, going on vacation. But, um, you know, if they're booking close to home, that indicates they may be uh, looking like a party house and they'll they'll screen out some of those. So they, they, they take steps. Um, the nature of their business is there's no clerk at the lobby desk, right? There's no lobby. There's no way to see. I mean, presumably there's some way, but there's no, you know, they don't have hands-on personnel watching, you know, who comes and goes into their listings. Um, And as a result, you know, that, that, that creates an environment for people to, you know, do what they do, what they do, throw parties. And sometimes that leads, you know, in, 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 in bad directions. I mean, ho- the hotel industry broadly right. deals with some of these issues as well. Um, but it, it does, you know, I do think at the at the lower end of the hotel industry, you know, I think the problems are a little more rife. And, and it, it kind of goes back to the same question, right? It's like, do you have somebody, the hotels who have somebody at the front desk, you know, kind of paying attention to what yeah. goes on on the premise are less likely to have um, sort of rampant crime problems than a uh, a motel where, you know, maybe there is no front desk. It's the old school motel where you drive up to your front door and, and you bypass the lobby entirely. Right. Or maybe, right. you know, the, the hotel is just turning the other cheek because it's a type of business that is better than no business. Yeah, it's interesting. I just want to know, who just opened up the back door to let the dog in? One of you guys? <laughs> I knew it. We he knew was, it. Carol so, called it. Yeah, it was, he was so clawing and I was just like, oh, I got to get him out. I'll do it really quietly and maybe they won't hear. I looked behind me to see if there was a dog coming yeah. into our studio. Like, where's yep. the dog? Where's the dog? It's, it's the joys of working from home. We've and all been. You had maybe an Airbnb for your dog. Exactly. Yeah. Totally. Exactly. Well, it's a great story, guys. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. What's the name of the dog, Joel? Rocky. Rocky. Yeah. You, can, right. you can have him. <laughs> <laughs> Rocky. All right. Pat Clark, thank you so much as well. Real estate reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in New York City. Only because I know I'm opening and closing the door for the dog all the time. <laughs> no, you called no. that, Carol. You <laughs> knew exactly what happened. It's like an old time radio show, right? Like, you know, like <laughs> the little sound effects. Um, I think it's interesting. You and I were talking about Airbnb and like renting out your house or something. And my concern is like, how well do you screen these people? You know, and especially if you're not home, I know people who rent rooms and they're yeah. home. That's different. Yeah, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it, Carol. Right. I'm not going to let Rocky no. in. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser.
from Bloomberg Radio. So let's get to our weekly Bloomberg Green segment. It's a deep dive into how the new energy giants are, well, probably not what you might expect, uh, especially in a week where ExxonMobil is about to incur the biggest write-down in modern history. We are definitely, Tim, seeing the energy world turned upside down. The acceleration of trends. I can't say it enough. It's what's yeah. happened during the pandemic. I love it. I love it um, when it comes to certainly the renewable companies. So let's bring in Brian Eckhouse. He's energy reporter at Bloomberg News. Let's get more on his story. He joins us on the phone in Los Angeles. So Brian, good to have you here with us. Tell us a little bit about your story because the new energy giants, they're not the ExxonMobil's of the world. They're the new or the renewable companies that have really made great progress and great strides. Yeah, absolutely. These are companies that are greatly utilities that may not be the household names like an Exxon, like a BP, like a Shell. Uh, it's an L of Italy, Iberdrola, Nextera, which is a big utility base in Florida, it's Orsted. Um, these are companies whose market caps increasingly are rivaling that of the big oil majors, but their names are known mostly like in Florida or in their home countries in, in Europe. Uh, but they prioritized, you know, buying and building of solar farms and wind farms when it was still very expensive. It was alternative. And now much of the world is increasingly going toward uh, clean power. And these companies, these utilities that invested early on when it was expensive, they're kind of positioned now for this growth that's happening right now in the U.S. and elsewhere. So what did they see when the big energy companies weren't seeing? What did they see that they didn't see? I don't know if it's not what they didn't see. It's a more because they're already in power. You know, they're the ones that were sort of like the innovators dilemma, right? You don't want to cannibalize your own business. Perhaps a little bit of that. I think also these are companies that like are tasked with making sure that our lights are on at all, t- all times of the day. BP, Exxon, Shell, you know, there are companies that really worked over the world to find uh, oil, to find gas, uh, different part of the energy world. But increasingly, as we move to electrify more and more things, cars, homes, etc., the energy world, whether it's electricity or the ones that pulled oil and gas out of the ground, it's increasingly becoming like one world. Well, I, I got to say, you know, before we got going, um, Brian, I, I was reading to Tim. I said, I love this. Renewables are now, this is in your story, renewables are now the cheapest form of new electricity in most of the world. I mean, I remember years ago, houses with solar um, panels on them, you know, it was really cool. It was really new, but they wouldn't sell. Um, it just wasn't as viable. And we've really turned a corner, Brian, when it comes to this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for a long time in the U.S., particularly when it came to rooftop solar you know, it was really boom and bust based upon the availability of subsidies. Mm-hmm. If they'd go away, there'd be a rush to get uh, panels on your roof before, before they went away. Um, now we're seeing a little bit more steady, uh, steadiness to this. And during the pandemic, uh, rooftop solar has done pretty well. There were questions if there would be uh, installations uh, able to be done back in March and April. Right. By June, a lot of the companies that, that do rooftop solar turn the corner, doing things remotely, in terms of getting inspections and uh, sales. Um, so they're actually in for a banner year. We're looking at a record mm. year this year for rooftop solar in the U.S. Wow, I mean, that's surprising given that the, the way that the Trump administration actually made it difficult and more expensive to buy some of these products to, to put on your roof. Um, I wonder, Brian, how the economics have shifted in recent years for these renewable companies. What has made it, it more affordable for these types of investments to be made? Why is it accelerated during the pandemic? I mean, a big reason is that, that rooftop solar, solar at large, wind, it just, it's just a lot cheaper. 
Uh, in a lot of the U.S., you know, solar and wind uh, is the cheapest form of electricity. Not everywhere, but a lot of places. Even in Texas, hmm. uh, uh, wind has dominated for a very, very long time. And the last 18 to 24 months, solar has really boomed there. As looking at a major wave. I mean, we can't of, uh, we, we can't ignore the symbolism of that, right? Texas, this is a, a state that was built on oil, right? Absolutely, and in fact, at that point, uh, we're seeing solar power uh, actually like electrify uh, oil operations in West Texas. <laughs> So Great. There's, there's Great. interesting integration going on there, which you wouldn't have thought of two or three years ago. Hey, listen, uh, just got about 45, 50 seconds. Um, China, we talk about they continue to build coal, pl- coal plants, but they are some of the largest owners of wind and solar capacity, right? And will likely continue to be. So they are playing a big role in all of this. Yeah, absolutely. China is a dominant player uh, in solar, particularly uh, a lot of the solar that comes to the U.S. is either made in China or more likely it's made by companies that are China-based, Yeah, uh, done elsewhere in Asia. Um, China is the, the definite global leader when it comes to solar in terms of their own uh, installations and how they produce panels that are put in elsewhere, including here in the U.S. You know, Brian, I can see like reporting on the energy majors, right? We've gone from those old traditional big oil companies and the integrated oil companies, and we're now going to be talking about these kinds of companies going forward just quickly. Yeah, but we're still going to see the big oil companies, you know, play a role yeah. going forward. All right. So, it's a field. Good stuff, though, and good to have on our radar. Brian Eckhouse, thank you so much. Energy reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone from L.A. West Coast, did you see a lot of solar, like, when you go back home? A ton. My a parents ton. installed it a few years ago. It they made did. sense, yeah. That's great. It I love sense. it. I love it. I th- I'd love to see more renewables as much as possible. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, folks, we've just got about 11 minutes left in today's trading session. Tim, we're kind of hovering near our highs of the day. I think people are upbeat about maybe some stimulus ultimately. I don't yeah, know. this could maybe happen. Maybe. Soon. Yeah. Don't, Who knows? Uh, Can't see yeah. the future. Don't count your chickens yet. Or eggs or whatever it is, right? Yeah. <laughs> before they're hatched. Yeah, that's right. Um, let's bring in Kirk Hartman. He is president and global chief investment officer at Wells Fargo Asset Management. They've got $607 billion in assets under management. Uh, and they're looking at uh, all kinds of asset class uh, asset classes. Kirk certainly oversees all of them. Fixed income, factor-based, quantitative. He is with us on the phone from Los Angeles. It's a little bit of a wacky day, Kirk. How are you? Oh, uh, we're doing fine. Uh, California is a bit of a lockdown with restaurants being closed, but otherwise, you know, we're doing as best we can. Yeah, I do wonder. It does feel like you know we've all been like we see, we've seen this movie before. We know what happens if we don't start to rein in and shut things down. And it does feel like officials are closing things down pretty quickly, which I think a lot of people and health professionals would probably say, "Yep, that's the right thing to do." Well, I think that's right. Um, obviously, the concern. Um, well, we all want the virus to slow down is the effect on the economy. And, um, you know, you worry about restaurants and small businesses and, um, you know, those types of issues. Yeah, I wonder when the issues that small businesses are having, that restaurants are having, 
when does that start to have an effect on on the U.S. economy, and then traders actually see that as a risk for stocks? Uh, great question. There's clearly a uh, disconnect um, between the um, you know normal life and the markets. I, I think what's very interesting is that the small cap, which to me are a much better of the broader mm. economy, have come back very strong. I mean, we were down Big time forty percent, and now we're up ten percent. So small caps have come back a lot, which um, you know, hopefully is a sign that the smaller business world, um, but, you know, we'll have to see. But it, look, everything is predicated on a great rollout of the virus. So my concern is that the rollout doesn't go as smoothly as everyone hopes, because clearly these markets now are, are pretty much priced for, uh, for perfection. Well, and what's interesting is... Um you talk about small caps. I mean, they had quite a run in November, uh, longest run that we've seen or biggest bounce we've seen in some time. Um, small caps, though, are not kind of, I think, small business America. And I do wonder mm. that disconnect, um, Kirk, that we continue to see between what's going on in Wall Street, which is one thing, and then what's going on in a lot of America. I agree with that. In fact, I, I had the same thought a couple minutes ago that small caps are obviously public companies, and they are probably... Uh, behaving somewhat differently than the uh, private uh, companies and the real the smaller companies. Um, 50% of the U.S. economy is smaller business. Right. So that's why I think everyone is so worried and concerned um, and hopeful that we get another stimulus package. If we, if we don't, what are your expectations? Because I do wonder then, do we fall into even a deeper recession and it's going to be one that's going to be much more difficult to come out? And then ultimately, that will drag down everything. Well, that is the concern. Um, I think that with low interest rates and the Fed committed to low interest rates, and um, I think the expectation of some kind of stimulus coming Mm -hmm. um, is probably uh, pretty good, especially with Georgia elections coming up in in January. Both There's pressure on both parties to come up with something. So I am optimistic, but, um, you know, very much so either a slowdown on the rollout of the vaccines or a turn down, uh, another turn down for small business could be very damaging. What if the yield curve continues to steepen? Well, I think the yield curve will continue to steepen, which is helping the banks. And I think that it's important to remember that almost a third of the small cap indices are banks. So uh, a steeper yield curve is very good for financials and banks, which I think is why it's powering the financials and uh, the small cap so where do you want to be in this market environment right now? You know, where I feel like, Kirk, depending on the day, people are like, okay, we're seeing a rotation in the markets. Oh, nope, we're seeing a return back to, you know, the momentum players. So what is your best guess, especially when we know it's probably going to be a tough month or two um, through, you know, until we get through the holidays, get through this next wave of the virus. And as we wait, you know, for these, uh, for the vaccines to come out, we heard earlier from um, a guest. Dr. Dua. Dr. Dua who's out there on the West Coast saying specifically she didn't expect the healthcare professionals to get the vaccine before the end of the year and their priority. Well, I think we uh, all have to hope that the healthcare professionals and the primary caregivers get them quickly. Um, I think that um, the market uh, will do okay. Um, I think that uh, we all know the vaccine is coming. It's just a matter of time. And you saw the good news out of Europe. Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, that is a very positive sign. 
Okay. Um, and, you know, you go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I'm, I'm, I want to talk history here and go back to the flu pandemic of, of 1918 to, to 1920, because as you were talking to our producers, you talked about how that was followed by the Roaring Twenties, which I think if we look at any sort of historical context here, what can that tell us about how you're thinking about these Roaring Twenties, which I have to say, Carol... Did not go off to a great start. No, didn't we fall into a, de- a depression after that? We did, but I mean, 2020 was has been, I think, it's not, the year's not over yet, but no. it's fair to say this has been like the longest year of my life. Yeah, exactly. Kirk, what do you well, think? The, yeah. Well, the historical analogy, I think, is very apt. You know, the 1918 to 1920, you had 600,000 um, Americans die because of the flu pandemic. You had right. the roaring 20s, um, but you then had the Great Depression. And I don't think we're going to have a Great Depression, but... I do think we are going to have to deal with the debt. Mm. So um, there's no question in my mind uh, that there's so much money in the system. Our money funds have gone from $100 billion to well over $200 billion. There wow. is a lot of money on the sidelines that's going to go to work. The question is, we have clearly borrowed from the future to pay for the present, and, and understandably so, but we're going to have to pay the piper at some point. So that's the... the uh, risk that's looming out there. Right. And especially with expectations of some more maybe relief. So that deficit just goes up a little bit more. Um, Kirk, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Kirk Hartman, President and uh, Global Chief Investment Officer at Wells Fargo Asset Management, $607 billion in assets under management on the phone from Los Angeles. Like I remember for a long time, Tim, you know, the deficit hawks and we would just talk about it ad nauseum. Remember them? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it's just like, we would constantly talk about US debt, US debt, you know, and then I remember the downgrade not so long ago, right? Just a few years ago. And I'm just thinking, and then we kind of got away from it all. Uh, Carol, I think it's political. You think it's, what do you mean? Yeah, it's, I mean, Republicans love to go after Democrats who uh, increase the deficit. And we had heard nothing of that over the last four years when President Trump ran up the deficit to record levels. And we're about to start hearing about it again from Republicans when Biden gets to office. Yeah, so get ready, right? Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us too on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Thank you.